0: This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world. That was
1: the final straw for Cyril after many, many years of racial red flags that had flown at Hawthorne for him.
0: Boy, oh boy, have you set the cat among the pigeons with this story, and will it be the story that brings down Jeff Kennett's presidency at the Hawthorne Football Club? Oh,
1: Corrie, it's just the most fascinating book. I highly recommend it. The Brilliant Boy by Gideon Haig.
0: The girls and I were talking about this, and we came up with a scheme, Send Me Your Nana. <laughs> Send Me Your Nana could be an agency, with respect for older workers, which is what it's all about. Don't Shoot The Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin.
1: And welcome to episode 212 of Don't Shoot The Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson coming to you from Melbourne and I'm joined by my regional pal this week, Corrie Perkin. Hello,
0: Corrie. Hello, Caro. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Tell us where you are and what you're doing, please.
0: Uh, I am in the beautiful Port Ferry, uh, another mini break for us, Caro. We have a week here and the weather is a little overcast today, but we have promises of things to come, so we're very excited.
1: Another mini break. This Port Ferry holiday, I know you have been there before, but here you've planned a few trips to Port Ferry and you haven't got there nearly enough, so I'm thrilled you've made it.
0: Yeah, well, look, it's it's um, it has become a bit of our home away from home. We feel very comfortable here. And I think that for us, one of the things that we love so much about Port Ferry is, Carol, you walk everywhere. You just, unless you want to go on a day trip to the Apostles or Portland or Warrnambool or something, but you walk everywhere. So uh, it's great. You just put the car keys on the table and you don't touch them for a week. It's We're very happy.
1: Well, you have a wonderful cake recipe today. We've been watching a new show on Netflix. We want to talk about Cyril Rioli and his really sad relationship, really, with the Hawthorne Football Club. Bit more Port Fairy, Corrie's grumpy, I've Got a Fact. But first of all, we need to thank our show sponsors, Red Energy, our most satisfied customers, 12 years in a row, and Prince Wine Store. We'll be talking wine with Miles very, very soon in the show. Just remember you need to visit princewinestore.com.au and we remind you, Corrie, about our Mother's Day event. This is happening at the Bells Hotel, where we've been before and loved in South Melbourne, 530 till 7.30 on Thursday, May the 5th. We have many special, well, several special guests. Anna from the Op Shop and my mum, Julia, are going to be joining us. Your $60 ticket will include a donation to BCNA. And our special guest, Corrie, which is incredibly timely, are going to be, well, really Canberra Australia's power couple, Heather Hewitt and Barry Cassidy, which we're very excited about.
0: What those two don't know about federal politics, uh, Caro, it really—it's—it's it's, that is an embarrassment of lineup and talent for our great show at Bells. I cannot wait.
1: Well, particularly because we think the election will probably—we're sitting here on the eve of the day we think the election is going to be called. So, plenty to talk about, and of course Heather's wonderful show on the ABC backroads that has been. Just one of the great sort of sleeper victories of um, ABC television. It's been such a great success. And, um, Corey, you're on a, well, not really a back road, but a bit of a back road at the moment. We'll talk about that in a moment. And you're going to Geelong next week, speaking regional, to be talking to, um, you're interviewing John Fane. Is that right, about his new book?
0: Yep. I'm on the road with John Carroll. We have two events together, one in Geelong next week, as you said, and then a couple of weeks later, the week after Easter, we're doing a Melbourne Press Club event together. In uh, at Crown, but the one next week, particularly want to shout out to all of those potties who live in the Bellarine Peninsula area and Western Victoria. If you'd like to come to Geelong on Tuesday the 12th, uh, that's next Tuesday at 5 30 till 6 30 at the gorgeous venue called The Co, which is KO, it's in Lambert Street, Newtown. John and I will be having a chat about his new book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. Which is uh which is a fantastic book, Carol. Well I'll talk about it probably next week as my book. So I'll leave it till then. But John will be available. Uh the the gang at the Bookbird bookshop in Geelong are going to be selling the books. Uh there'll be wine and cheese and um we'd love to see you. Uh tickets, uh, if you want a link to the tickets, you can either jump on the Corrie is Reading Instagram account and follow the link there or I think Miss Jane is going to very kindly put it on our show notes. So that's next Tuesday. Love to see all the Geelong potties.
1: And, yes, and the May the 5th event, our Mother's Day event, our live podcast, of course, details for the tickets, are also in the show notes. Thank you to all our corresponders. This week, correspondents, I should say, um, Beck Franks, who loved Trent Dalton's love stories, genuine, delightful, beautiful, one of the most genuine, delightful, and beautiful books she's ever read. Cindy Grouden, I think I'm happy about this email, Corrie. Dear Caro and Corrie, dear Caro, Corrie and Jane, I found your podcast recently, and I'm loving the perfect combination of chat, recommendations, recipes, and reviews. He lives in the Clare Valley in South Australia within walking distance of two huge fig trees. Oh, Corrie, I did your fig and blue cheese and prosciutto the other night. Absolutely beautiful. Um, Sorry, I used camberzola cheese. Delicious.
0: Yeah, but- the good thing about that recipe, Kara, sorry to interrupt you reading this Cindy's letter, but the great thing about that recipe is you can use any cheese, any little bit of cheese that you've got in the fridge, so long as it's a gooey one.
1: Yes, I wouldn't probably use tasty. I think that wouldn't quite work. I mean, you don't even need cheese, actually, but it is nice with a bit of soft cheese. Um, But disturbingly, Cindy has asked if we knew of the other Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast from South Africa. Like ours, it's headed by an articulate journalist, Rebecca Davis. She highly recommends we listen, and if we haven't, listen to the episode about women in sport. She thinks that we'll find it both interesting and well-produced. Corrie, who was first, which Don't Shoot the Messenger was first.
0: Why does that make you grumpy? I think that's fantastic.
1: Well, not not grumpy, just a bit disturbed that I thought we were the true originals, but maybe we're not.
0: Well, we'll have to do it. Well, we we are up to episode. What's today? Two hundred and twelve. We'll have to check what they're up to. In fact, do you measure the length or the 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 lifespan of a podcast on the date that you started your first recording? Or the number of episodes.
1: Oh, I think the day you started the first recording. Anyway. Well, then that's
0: August 2017. We'll investigate and get back to you, Cindy, about that one.
1: Anyway, enough about us and a bit more about Corrie, who is on the road again. So, Corrie, um, the Victorian Government travel vouchers are coming back into effect this weekend, I gather. We're going to talk about getaways, but take us through your port ferry and what you've been up to and what you can recommend.
0: Well, we only arrived here a couple of days ago, so it's still early days. But Caro, the Victorian Travel Voucher Scheme, which people may recall, came online again a few weeks ago, maybe about three or four weeks ago. And it was an allocation of 140,000 travel vouchers. That's now expired. But I would imagine this has been so successful because they were snapped up quickly that the government will do this again as a way of injecting funds and increasing visitation to rural Victoria post-lockdown. What a great idea. I jumped on board and I was successful. So, Cara, what I have is I will receive a $200 reimbursement for a, a particular for particular expenses, and I'll go through those in a second, that I incur during my travel uh, around Victoria between the 8th of April and the 27th of May. What I have to do is spend more than $400 on accommodation or tours or events or attractions. It doesn't include restaurants, grog, uh, gaming, it says. No,
1: I, I should <laughs> think not.
0: Because <laughs> I want you, to just spend all day in the pokies. Imagine if
1: you claim uh, Boc- one a one-armed bandit. What a
0: dreadful idea. Carol, not that there are pokies so in Port so Fairy. Uh, Well, I couldn't believe it was the first on the list. So the government's clearly onto this as as an issue, but also transport costs and fuel and that kind of thing. The vouchers don't cover that, but it does cover your legitimate um, interaction with an accommodation or a tour service or something like that. So that's all fine. So we are very excited about that because we're thinking that maybe on Friday or Saturday, which will be uh, around the 8th and 9th, that's probably when we might go down to uh, the Apostles or Paul Campbell. Having said that, Carol, the... I looked at the weather report this morning for Port Ferry and Friday and Saturday are going to be beautiful days. And as you know, we love that east beach sitting there in the sun so that and having a swim there. So that's probably on the agenda. But we're, Pete and I intend to play a bit of golf at the local Port Ferry golf course in the next couple of days. And tomorrow we're thinking we might even go and play at Warnable. We we'll have we we'll visit the family in Hamilton and Ballarat probably on the way home. So we're doing a big circle at the moment and we're very happy about it. Last night we had dinner at the wonderful Conlon's Wine Store, which I can't wait for you and Brendan to uh, to visit when you... You're you're coming to Port Ferry at some stage, aren't you?
1: Well, yeah, the, the kids uh, for Christmas gave us um, a weekend or a, a night or two in Port Ferry um. At Drift Drifthouse, I think is the name, I think yes, yeah. Drift House, it's beautiful. yep, yeah. and it looked very hard at the moment um with the state election looming at the end of the year and the footy season to nail um a night or two to get away, but we it will happen, and we too love Port Ferry. and it's funny, we're sitting here, you know on the brink of Easter in autumn, weather's just starting to get a little bit cooler. And it is the time that people get away, isn't it? I mean, Easter's, you know, so many people go camping at Easter. So many people plan these little mini breaks. Uh, there there are three I've never done and I just would love to do. I've never been to Bright and people just rave about, you know, the those old railway tracks that you can now ride bikes along and the fabulous Italian restaurant there and the autumnal colours. I've never actually spent time in Trentham. I've been around there. Embarrassingly, I'm told... It's one of the most beautiful places in Victoria, although Port Ferry would probably still probably be my number one. And I still, and we've talked about this, but I still haven't spent serious time in the Adelaide Hills and I would love to go and spend a little bit of time there. So that'd be my three at the moment. What about you?
0: Well, you're lining up with me, girlfriend, because bright, as I think I've said on the podcast before, bright from about April through to May, you know, the autumn leaves there, my grandparents used to drive up there every autumn and they would take, my grandfather was an enthusiastic amateur photographer and he would just take photographs and then they would come home from their trip, and every year we would be subjected to a sheet being hung up on the wall in their living room and the projector slide coming up and we would have to sit there and ooh and ah over... Probably 100 photographs of autumn leaves. I don't mind 10, maybe 20, but 100 later you're thinking, when are we going to get home to watch my three sons on television? <laughs> really, it is, suppo- it is supposed to be beautiful and uh, I want to go to Bright in autumn as well. The other one I have a soft spot for, and I know you do too, is Lawn. I haven't been to Lawn for ages, so I would love to get down there and... and um. We'll pop in on the feel, way home. Feel- well, we could possibly do that if we if we weren't going to Hamilton and through the guts of Victoria. The other one I'm really keen to go to, and this would probably be a winter getaway, Carol, when you just think I need sunshine, uh, may, might not appeal to you, but is the Murray Downs Golf and Country Club, which is near Swan Hill. And apparently mm. the weather in July and August is so mild and lovely. I could play a few pokies up there, I reckon.
1: We went on a camping trip to Swan Hill once um, with uh, another family, no, great friends of the Lees, when we were sort of, not, oh, I, I think I was a teenager. The local footy club, which at the time I think was run by John Loritz, who went on to become CEO of the Hawthorne Football Club, I reckon half of the local footy dignitaries of Swan Hill visited the campsite every night for a few beers because of Dad's involvement with Richmond. I, you know, I, I don't, camping was not really my gig. Swan Hill, nice, but... Yeah, no, you you can have Murray Downs on your own. You can have that on your own. Brendan actually got a hole-in-one in in Swan Hill once. So he has happy memories of Swan Hill, very happy memories. Oh,
0: um, yeah, well, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Now, um, Caro, it has been a really busy weekend for you, or or actually this time last week you were leading up to it because, of course, you uh, had a fantastic opportunity to interview Cyril Rioli's partner about what's been happening with Cyril and Hawthorne over the past few years but boy oh boy have you set the cat among the pigeons with this story and will it be the story that brings down Jeff Kennett's presidency at the Hawthorne Football Club? How did the story come about?
1: Well the the obviously this is something that um I think probably a lot of journalists would have loved. We're trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened when Cyril Rioli left Hawthorne suddenly and dramatically in 2018, when he had two more years left on his contract. He walked away from a lot of money. Um, room there were rumours at the time, and in fact, I think Damien Barrett did a report on the Footy Show at the time about a comment Jeff Kennett had made to Shannon Rioli about her torn jeans. Um, comment was made at the end of a Indigenous Round game at Launceston Airport back in 2018, that those remarks, seen as innocuous by some, but deeply offensive to the Riolis, sparked a a series of events which led to Cyril missing training, a lot of top level meetings, um, Indigenous welfare experts brought in to talk with the Riolis, um, a lot of meetings with Cyril's management, etc. The Riolis went back to Darwin, came back to Melbourne, there was a meeting and he left. Now, you know the story um, that I wrote after extensive conversations. The the Rioli's, I think, um, I don't know what triggered their decision to talk about it now. But we were talking about Cyril's retirement, his sudden retirement on Footy Classified a, a few weeks ago. After, in the wake of the Ashbarty retirement, it was just a you know conversation about shock early retirements, and I think something resonated with them. Um, and both of the Riolis felt they wanted to tell their side of the story. And they did so to me separately. Um, Shannon, um, over a series of conversations, one a lengthy conversation in a park in Melbourne where she's living at the moment, and in several long phone conversations with Cyril. And, Corrie, the you know, people of, um, I think um, oh, Mark Robinson in the Herald Sun described the article as a hit job. On Jeff Kennett, which was just a total misunderstanding of the story. Um, Jeff Kennett obviously precipitated the, the resignation of Cyril Rioli, and his comments were clearly uneducated and un, very thoughtless. But it, it was that was the final straw for Cyril after many many years of racial red flags that had flown at Hawthorne for him and this has upset Hawthorne a lot and um, there were some very powerful people in Australian sport no longer at Hawthorne who were at the club before Jeff Kennett um, who were gutted by this, you know, Stuart Fox who's now running the MCC, Andrew Newbold now on the AFL Commission, they were CEO and President, Luke Hodge, you know, is, is gutted by it too and they all have a version of events but I think the bottom line is they're all shocked by what they've heard, which only tells me how uneducated and how ill-equipped footy clubs were even 10 years ago, five years ago, to deal with issues the in, issues of Indigenous Australia. It, it's it's such a sad story. And the bottom line is one of the greatest players of the 2000s and one of Hawthorne's all-time greats, a Norm Smith medalist, three-time All-Australian, is completely estranged from the game and from his old football club. It's just so tragic.
0: It's really tragic, Caro, and it's it it, it highlights yet again how uh, there there seem to be different conversations going on, and the and Australia is becoming or is divided between those who kind of get the importance of the conversations and understand the importance of listening and those who just still don't kind of get it. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago in a webinar that I held through the How to Write series with Professor Larissa Barrent, who you know, the Sydney academic. She's a lawyer, she's an Indigenous activist and so on. She's also a fantastic filmmaker and writer, author of books. And she just talks about how there are these constant moments in recent Australian history, where there are attempts to disempower the voices of Indigenous people. And part of that disempowerment is just by kind of not listening and not thinking, in other words, having no empathy, or not even the capacity to have empathy. And and Larissa says that the sharing of knowledge just makes for such a more, much more interesting debate. Um, And I just kept thinking, her words kept resonating all over the weekend as different people fed in. You mentioned uh, the Herald Sun before. So many people have jumped into this debate with really good kinds of positive language and clunky language. Clunky language, people not really knowing how to respond or what they should say. And even, dare I say, shooting the messenger being you, Um, you know, which is that, that sort of suggestion that you're after Jeff Kennett and you have another have another motive. <coughs> Even that is um, disrespectful. It's so confusing for so many people.
1: And Larissa Barent's a really good name to bring up because she oversaw of course the Do Better report and it was only, it was funny, but it was only last week or the week before that she was quoted somewhere as saying that, you know, a year in to that Do Better report and the stuff Collingwood's doing, there have been some really positive outcomes, but the job's not done. And she did say this should not be just about Collingwood, it should be about all clubs. And, you know, to be frank, Corrie, Alistair Clarkson came to Hawthorne and welcomed Indigenous footballers into that football club. And, you know, his background as the boy from Conniver, he felt he, knew and had relationships with Indigenous Australia. And as the Rioli said to me, they genuinely feel he tried to do the right thing. And at times, you know, he made some comments that were, you know, offensive, but he was one of many and he's still trying for no other reason than than the fact he wants to reconnect with Cyril himself personally, is trying to forge a relationship with him again. But, um, you know, Hawthorne was a club that didn't welcome Indigenous footballers, famously didn't back in the 80s. Then that changed. And yet they just didn't have the people in place to help them. And and they still say, oh, but we, we did do cultural awareness. We did nights. We brought Indigenous food in from Darwin. You know, Cyril spoke. Um, Amos Frank, another very short-lived um, Indigenous footballer from very remote a very remote part of South Australia, spoke they just had no no real idea of what they should have been doing. And sadly, not all the Indigenous players who were at Hawthorne over that period were comfortable about what went on. There you know, we talked um, on Footy Classified on Monday night about the Adam Goods booing game back in twenty fifteen, when, you know, Cyril and Sean Bergorn were so upset that Hawthorne supporters were booing Adam Goods and yet the club refused to take a stand and, and say anything to its supporters. And so many clubs did not want to call out their supporters at the time as racist. And this was so deeply upsetting, obviously for Adam Goods and the Swans, but also for the Indigenous players at the clubs whose supporters were booing Adam Goods.
0: From memory, uh, Jeff Kennett at that time also was one who came on board saying, it's just the banter of footy, it's just what happens. He, he no, it wasn't. It was, in fairness, it
1: was actually Andrew Newbolt who said that.
0: Oh, I'm Um, sorry, my apologies. Yeah,
1: Jeff Kennett wasn't president at the time. And, I mean, I think that's sort of the difference with Collingwood. Eddie had been chairman for, you know, since the late 90s. So probably, you know, he really had to carry the can in the end. But there are many people at Hawthorne. And Jeff's only been back there for a few years. And I'm not saying he did the right thing with Shannon Rioli, but... If people keep saying to me, oh, for, for heaven's sake, you know, why are you portraying Jeff as a racist over a comment about torn jeans? That's not the point of the story at all. Um It's the Rioli's truth. And I hope that people at Hawthorne take note of that and don't continue to try and badmouth Shannon Rioli, make this all about, you know, the woman having too much influence over her husband, because there is as I said the other day, a touch of the Yoko Ono's about this. And it happens a lot in footy where the wife is blamed. And it's really, again, a case of shooting the messenger. So um, I don't think this story's over, but I do think that for Hawthorne to move forward, they have to make their peace with Cyril. And you're a Hawthorne person. I mean, I'm sure you agree.
0: Well, it breaks my heart. As you know, I saw him playing when he was a school kid and we all... um you just knew he was a talent and and he ended up being such a great contributor to the game, as you say. As a Hawthorne supporter, it's just devastating, not only that Cyril and Shannon have felt this way for so long, but that there are other Indigenous players, past and probably present right now, who are feeling uncomfortable about this. It has to be dealt with. You know, just finally, back on Larissa Barrent, one of the things, other things that she said in our webinar was she made the point... You don't get to be the world's oldest living culture just because you know how to live with the land it's because you know how to live with other people and her thing is about connection and this is what first nations culture is all about where they where are you from who's your tribe who are you and there's this sense of welcome and inclusivity that sometimes White Australia and particularly footy clubs lack that inclusivity. There's a, sometimes there's a bit too much of us and them. So I do hope that lessons are learned and I hope the dialogue really is powerful and continues. Well done you for for, for this great story and um, and clearly for gaining the trust of Cyril and, and Shannon. I mean, that, Carol, that is a huge achievement.
1: Well, what I want to do now, and I won't be able to do it in the next little while, but I want to go to Darwin and... Um, I've been invited up there to spend time with him to see what his life is like you know maybe he'll come back to Melbourne where Shannon's living at the moment and um and and start working with an AFL club or with the AFL and help you know help improve the indigenous pathways because his influence is so great and I know we know you know and we've revealed some a long series of direct messaging between himself and Sam Mitchell that went on in December, January, um, where Sam, again, is appears determined to change things at Hawthorne. It's going to be interesting.
0: Caro, you and I want to make this our conversation today about Cyril and Shannon and about this wider issue with First Nations in footy. But I do have to ask you, Do you, the future of Jeff Kennett, do you think this is another straw that breaks the camel's back?
1: Look, I do. I do. And I don't think, um, as I say, it shouldn't be the only story. But I think that um, Jeff, I think, went to Hamilton last week and was saying to a few people there that he intends to dig in. Um, this did not go down well with the Hawks for Change. And there were some very powerful people on that movement who were trying to get Jeff to stand down. He apparently agreed to nominate a successor by June 30. Um, there's a very much a strong and galvanising movement for Jeff to stand down by the end of the year, even though he's... He's in power nominally until the end of 2023. So, um, you know, I I don't think it's looking great for him. I I think, you know, what really hurt Jeff was um, the Alistair Clarkson departure last year. Even if Sam Mitchell, you know, turns out to be, you know, Jock McHale, I don't think fans will forget the clumsy handling of um, how that succession plan took place.
0: I think it's a really important uh, issue. Well done. I look forward to seeing what evolves, not only from you, but all your all your other colleagues in the media. There are certainly more stories to be told.
1: Yes, it's time to enter the cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store. Miles is with us, which is so exciting, and we're talking today the April Mix Dozen.
2: Yeah, it's out and it's good.
1: <laughs> Tell us all about it.
2: So this this month I did a little Australia verse well Australia versus the world, but it's really Australia versus Europe. So I picked a, six Aussie varietals um, and or six wines, and then I matched them against the, their sort of European counterparts. So so a Riesling from Germany and a Riesling from um, from Eden Valley, and I've got a Syrah from the Northern Rhone and a Shiraz from Australia uh, from Barossa. And I've got uh, Sangiovese from Beechworth and this little Rosso, which I bought in for you. Miles, what a
1: brilliant idea.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a bit fun, something a little different. I wanted to do some Aussie wines, but I thought I'd I'd sort of match them up against some European stuff because, you know, we do a lot of that at Prince. Miles, first of all,
0: where's my bottle? Cara gets one and I don't. (laughs) Secondly, oh, I forgot he weren't coming um, in.
1: I'll <laughs> save it for you, Corrie. Second,
0: <laughs> secondly, does Prince Wine Store deliver to Port Ferry? Absolutely. Thirdly, though, um, <laughs> <We> I <do. laughs> I love these sort of matchups, Carol, Caro, remember in the bookshop we used to have uh, Peter Marwood come in and we'd do wine tastings. We always loved doing a bit of, on one hand, he's the Aussie, and on the other, and sometimes that'd even be a blind tasting, very difficult to tell uh, the variations apart. But the the European counterparts miles, have you tried I mean, who's the leader here? Are you trying to match the Aussies with the European or the European with the six fine Australians? How have you chosen it?
2: Uh, you know, I always sort of I do it as a as a competition, but it's not really. It's just to sort of see the diversity of sort of styles. Um, and what we're doing here in Australia, I, I, I guess a few of the things like Sangiovese and, and uh, I've got a Fiano in there as well. They're a little more what we, I guess, you sort of term the term alternative varietals, although they're pretty mainstream these days. There's a Tempranillo in there as well. So a Spanish Tempranillo and a, and a Aussie Tempranillo. So it's more just about to see the different styles, I think, more than anything. Well, um, we're um,
1: about to talk pineapples and a wonderful, a, a famous hummingbird cake recipe. That's going to be Corrie's um, BSF contribution today. Um, and I wonder if this beautiful bottle of red is going to go down. I reckon it'll go down well with pineapple. Tell us about it.
2: Uh, so that's, that's uh, Cinchilla rosso, So it's a Sangiovese and it's blended with a little bit of, I think, Cabernet and Merlot and some Syrah as well. So kind of a super Tuscan blend, but it's mostly Sangiovese.
1: And does it win? Does it beat, um, does it beat it's, the Aussie it's
2: version? Very, the Aussie version is very good. It's uh, Fighting Gully Road San Gervaisi, and that's excellent from Beechworth. So I don't know. I think it's more a stylistic thing. There's a bit, a bit of more plushness and sort of fleshiness on the on the uh, Fighting Gully Road. This is a little finer, has a little bit more bite to it, So which you expect from an Italian red in particular. They always have a little bit of a, a bite, which is perfect for food.
1: Corey, I don't know if you've ever done mm-hmm. a drink-off, but... Um There's something about the word Sangiovese that it it just sounds so delicious, doesn't it? It's just one of my favourite words, very Mm. evocative.
0: Well, you just think of yourself sitting in Tuscany somewhere having a bottle or 10, don't you really? But um, Miles, would I have one of the Rieslings you've chosen with my pineapple hummingbird cake? Yeah,
2: actually you could. The, The German Riesling, which is the Fritz. Um, it's got a little bit of sweetness on it, a little bit of residual sugar, but still comes off very dry, but that would be great with pineapple and it has that kind of tropical sort of lilt to it as well. The Aussie one's pretty dry, um the German one's got a little bit more sort of sweetness, so yeah, that would be good. miles,
1: how how much will this set us back the April mix dozen? So the April
2: mix dozen is two hundred and sixty. Whoa, how do you do it for
1: the price?
2: I don't know. Everyone keeps telling me I should put it up, but there you go.
1: (laughs) That is wonderful. So we can order that online or we can go to Prince and buy one.
2: Absolutely. We've got them in stock there or you can order them online. And I'll put up uh, a bunch of my favourites out of the pack on the the, um, Don't Shoot the Messenger page on the website. So you can order them by themselves if you just want to sort of try one or the other that sounds good.
1: That's an absolutely wonderful recommendation, Corrie. Next week I gather we're going to get Miles to pair something from the cocktail cabinet with pears, correct?
0: We are. You you and I Carol are going to have a pear bake-off.
2: Sounds good.
1: <laughs> I don't well, I look forward to what you're going to do to take up the challenge, Miles, yeah. but I look forward to um, your recommendations. Stuff. Thank you for recommending that mixed dozen. So that was a cocktail cabinet for Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world. Remember, visit princewinestore.com.au and tell them that Caro and Corrie sent you and use the promo code M E W S at checkout online to receive a listener discount and you'll find all the links in our show notes. Corrie, I am going to kick off BSF with a book today and then you're going to take over. Well, we'll share screen, but I think you've seen more of this show than me. And then you've got a wonderful, inspired by Jamie Oliver recipe. But I want to talk about Gideon Haig, who has written many books. And I'm embarrassed to say, I reckon this is the first one that I've actually read. It's entitled The Brilliant Boy, Doc Evert and the Great Australian Descent. Do you, you would know about this book, naturally.
0: I do know, yes. I do know. Very highly regarded book.
1: Well, it, it's just an, a fascinating story because... Um, we all grew up knowing about Doc Evatt. We learned about him in Australian history at school, and I guess he was very much seen as, you know, the um, probably the agitator against Sir Robert Menzies. He was, you know, his long time, long time political rival, um, but he was also one of Australia's great public intellectuals. And this is a fascinating story of a young lawyer, an inspired young lawyer, a, a brilliant speaker and writer and an absolute champion of the arts movement in Australia. And it opens, um, well, it opens in Sydney back in the 1930s and um, it's basically about a a dreadful accident that happens to a seven-year-old boy, a migrant boy who was drowned in a ditch that had been um, left filled with water, filled with rain um, and unfenced by the council. And basically um, what Doc Everett did, this young lawyer and this very complex case. And it, it winds through the whole book, really, this complex case that um, ended up to reach the High Court and um, Doc evett and what he did for this grieving family. Um, it changed the law. It changed the way we think about um, these issues. And there is so, so much more. Um, we go through the First World War – sorry, the Second World War. We go through Doc evett's absolutely fascinating family – we talk about, obviously, Gideon portrays Sir Robert Menzies, who was his great legal rival. You know, he was in Victoria. Doc Evatt was in New South Wales throughout the 30s and 40s before they become political rivals. His ascent into politics, and it was a very clunky and clumsy descent to, ascent to. Um, and, it oh, Corrie, it's just the most fascinating book. It's just so interesting, and I'm Eddie- embarrassed that I knew so little about Doc Evert.
0: There are a couple of things that I recall. I haven't read this book and I would love to read it because I love uh, early Australian politics. Anything from Federation up to the 50s or 60s has me totally enthralled. But he lost two brothers during World War One. Correct. And his mother, who had been really, you know, Britain was home, send the boys home to fight and had really supported them joining the forces over there. She apparently never recovered and the relationship that, that Doc had with her, his mother is quite profound and I think the deaths of his two brothers had a huge impact on his sense of nationalism. But the other one is the 1950 split in the Labor Party when the DLP was formed. Just a fascinating period when the Catholic Church reigned supreme, had so much power under Archbishop Mannix here in Melbourne. That in fact they influenced a successful political party to have a, to have a split and of course the the DLP, which was the Catholic run arm of the Labour Party, they formed their own party and for 15, 20 years it kept it kept until Gough Whitlam it kept Labor out of power and Bob Menzies in. It's such an interesting story this Carol. you know this book I was just um, looking as you're talking, I didn't realize that it had been shortlisted for a number of awards last year, which is great to see.
1: Well, Mum gave it to Brendan, I think, last, the Christmas, at the end of, yeah, over a year ago. And I actually, full disclosure, I actually read it in Amsterdam, so it's a few months old now. But I've meant to talk about it for quite a long time. Occasionally, you know, Gideon is so meticulous in his research. Fascinating, (laughs) too, to know that, um, to hear so much about Mary, his wife, Mary Alice, who became, you know, a great arts patron, a great political activist as well. So, with that meticulous research, there's a lot of detail, and there are times you sort of have to really focus and concentrate, and you're desperate to get back to you know what actually happened you know with this dreadful civil this dreadful case um about this young boy who drowned, and there's a lot of stuff about his family, his Jewish family oh look, it's just a um and and about you know what it was like to be a young a Jewish migrant family in Sydney in the nineteen thirties. A wonderful book, a wonderful book about the Everett family, as you say, about his mother, his parents and their huge ambitions for their boys and about Mary. Look, it's I highly recommend it. Um, I say again, The Brilliant Boy by Gideon Haig, Doc Everett and the Great Australian Descent. It makes, it, it's a, look, fans of Sir Robert Menzies probably won't enjoy it as much as others because although it doesn't in any way, come down very hard on him. It's just a different side of that whole story. And it's nice to read about, well, it's sad to think that Doc Everett is really remembered more as a sort of failed politician than than all the other wonderful things he did. Anyway, that is the yeah. book for this week. But um, now we've both watched, I've watched one episode. This is um, a new European, yet another European crime drama. Capitani on Netflix.
0: So Caro I want to just plug and shout out to our friend of the pod Graham Blundell who is our Sydney friend and he is the weekly reviewer in The Weekend Australian of all things little screen be it television programs or Netflix or or whatever it may be. And a couple of weeks ago, he said there were two crime series that we absolutely must get on board with. Um, And one of them is Capitani, which we're going to talk about today. And the other, for those people who are hanging out, what is the other one? It's on Stan, and Carol and I will review it in a couple of weeks. It's called Ice Cold Murders. But I find, I know you're a fan of um, Blundell's reviews, but I find his reviews of... Uh, of what's on the little screen, absolutely compelling, don't you? Oh I, I
1: love Graham Blundell's writing. He's found a such a fabulous second career as a critic, as a TV critic, and also you know a writer now of well, several books, including did he do the Graham Kennedy book? He did, I'm sure.
0: Uh, Graham Kennedy and also and also Bert Newton which has just been re-released again since Bert's death a couple of months ago but Capitani getting back to Capitani it's the latest foreign language drama that Netflix has picked up so this was made originally as uh, it, it's set in it, it's set in Luxembourg and um, it it was originally um, for the European market but but Netflix is so impressed with it uh, this 2019 drama that they've picked it up and turned it into one of their own which is um, a huge accolades for the local local production company that has produced it but it's a really interesting first of all the Luxembourg language is so interesting Caro I go back to my sixth form French and my third form German because it's such an interesting mix of French and German language but the This is a murder mystery, but it's set in the most beautiful country town, which is a town that that sits on almost on a little on a precipice in a way, surrounded by pine forests. And this is where, of course, a a girl, the body of a 15 year old girl is found. And that's what sort of kickstarts the whole story. I was completely mesmerized by uh, the main character, Luke Capitani, who is in this small village, we're not sure that unfolds later on. Why he is there, doing a bit of investigating of his own on in in his private time, a little bit of investigating of his own. And he receives a call from head office saying a body's being found. It's near where you are. Can you go and take a look? And, of course, he ends up staying in the town. But Sophie Musil, who plays, I think that's how you would pronounce her name, Sophie is, uh, she plays the local constabulary sidekick who Capitani chooses to help him with this murder investigation. She, what a find, what a doll, what a babe, what a great actor actor she is. Yeah,
1: well, she starts off as a very inexperienced policewoman, doesn't she? And something about her and a couple of comments she makes about the body and the murder makes him think it's her that he's going to trust. Because isn't he about to go on holidays when he gets the call? about this girl?
0: Yes he's on leave and he's in this town doing his own investigation but we're not sure what it is but that unfolds by about episode three you're starting to learn a bit more about that but it's um there's a cast of characters none of whom I think our potties wouldn't would be familiar with some really good acting a couple of times I felt like we were um particularly in sort of love scenes and so on I felt like we were off into Santa murders territory, but it pulled itself back. This whole premise of trying to find out what's happened to this this twin and, of course, her sister, the other twin, is missing for three days. Uh, We don't know where she is. is, um, There's a a, a slightly sinister stepfather. There's uh, trouble at local council with corruption running rife. And there's an army base nearby where Capitani is convinced there is evidence um, and they will find uh, the killer within that compound. So all in all, I don't want to give anything away, but I love love this series. Um, Are you enjoying it?
1: I am. I've only watched one. I watched it on Sunday night and I really enjoyed it um, because I've finished Tropo on the ABC, which actually really improved and I ended up really enjoying, I must say. Um, based on the Crimson Lake novel, but um getting back to capitani perfect recipe for a sort of autumnal weekend afternoon if you're sitting around this weekend. I highly recommend it too. Now, Corey, you've been cooking, and what have you been cooking?
0: Carol, I haven't been cooking, but my niece in waiting, I'm going to call her, so my lovely uh, nephew Tom Perkin came and stayed on the weekend with his partner Beck, and this is not the first time that the family has been treated to Beck's hummingbird cake. When we had our family muster lunch just before Christmas, with um, you know a collected number of about twenty-five or thirty people, Beck arrived. It was the first time we met her, and after she's a gorgeous girl. But particularly after trying the cake, my two daughters just went, "Oh, she's a winner!" <laughs> and we love this cake. Anyway, Beck very kindly bought it as a thank you gift on Saturday. I've asked her for the recipe, and I, and the recipe is on the show notes. And it is a Jamie Oliver hummingbird cake carrot. Now hummingbird cakes were really big in the seventies. I remember when we all discovered the carrot cake, the hummingbird cake made its entree as well. This one is made with pineapples, not and bananas, not carrots. But um, Beck has has altered the recipe slightly and. Jane is going to include in the show notes Beck's um, changes there. But it's essentially olive oil, self-raising flour, cinnamon, caster sugar, four very ripe bananas, a tin, a 425-gram tin of pineapple chunks um, rather than rings. Some hummingbird cakes use rings, use the chunks. Two eggs, vanilla extract, and 50 grams of pecan nuts. The icing, of course, like carrot cake is to die for. Icing sugar, unsalted butter, cream cheese. Don't we love that? Two limes in the icing. And you can do brittle if you want to, putting pecans and caster sugar in the oven for a little bit just to make that yummy crunch. But Beck's advice, carrot with this one is I think really important to this cake because it, the normal hummingbird cake can be very sweet. Beck says she uses brown sugar instead of caster sugar. Now, I can really taste that. And I said to her the other day that, brown, you know how brown sugar almost has like a slightly salty, caramelly yes. taste? And people Absolutely often think better. you've
1: put spices and into a cake when you taste it in something.
0: Exactly right. And, and then she also said instead of using pineapple chunks or rings, she uses a tin of crushed pineapple. Um, so it's just so the cake is really really moist and it's really broken down she also substitutes half a cup of oil for half a cup of pineapple juice left over from the tin of crushed pineapple so all of that's on the show notes but I just thought it's particularly heading into Easter when a lot of people are doing entertaining um, and it's a bit of it's a bit of a summer last hurrah to have something with pineapple in it so it it nods very nicely to the wines that Miles has suggested today. So that is the recipe, Jamie Oliver's Hummingbird Cake via Beck, and um, I hope everybody enjoys it. And that was BSF, everyone, for Red Energy.
1: Powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Remember, call Red Energy. I think it's time on 131 806. Corrie, You're on a roll. So tell us what you're grumpy about this
0: week. Carol, I'm really grumpy. I don't know whether anybody noticed this. Firstly, I noticed it during the Oscars ceremony, which, of course, in Australia is now in the hands of Channel 7. But increasingly and somewhat alarmingly, it seems that every single night when I watch the Channel 7 news, an ad for Clive Palmer pops up. Now, (laughs) Clive Palmer's... It's that
1: time of the year again. (laughs) Sorry.
0: But did you know, but did you know since August, Clive Palmer has spent more than $31 million on political advertising, which completely blitzes the major parties? And I just, particularly during the news, I find it a bit discombobulating when, and it, and it's not just about Clive's party, it could be Libs or Labor. When the news is on, I do find I get really confused. If you turn your head away or you go to stir the dinner or whatever and you come back and, and Clive Palmer's all over your screen, you're not entirely sure why. It's I just wonder about coming into an election campaign and all of those ads going on and on and on. Could we maybe just have a moratorium where... They don't invade our nightly news services. Uh, So anyway, I'm just particularly grumpy about that. I'd like there to be a real rethink and I'm dreading the next six weeks, I have to say.
1: I've got to say, um, I think you're going to be grumpy for six weeks. Because, you know, we know what Clive Palmer likes to spend his money on. Miss Jane's got her hand up. Yes, Jane. Sorry,
0: you're going to be mortified. I heard on uh, the ABC yesterday he's actually funded his own documentary and is buying commercial airtime on three major networks to screen the documentary. So it's not just going to be ads. <laughs> oh. Well, I hope they have big signs cash for comment everywhere. It's oh, just, dear. It's it's really appalling to think that we can, that that politicians can buy, rich politicians can buy important media time that's supposed to be free of all that stuff
1: anyway. He's a disruptor in the worst sense of the word.
0: Caro, on to six quick questions again for Red Energy. Do you want to kick it off?
1: Oh, look, I'm fascinated in your thoughts on this one. Was the Queen right to take Prince Andrew as her chaperone to the Duke of Edinburgh's memorial service?
0: Yes and no. Can I sit? Can I do a yes and no on this one? There, look, my heart goes out to the family, Carol. We have a ninety-five-year-old matriarch who has has um, who lost her husband a year ago, who is on a walking stick and clearly more frail than she was a year ago, who has to front up to the very public memorial for her husband at Westminster Abbey. She decides to take the side door and she needs somebody by her side. There's no doubt about that. So should she be allowed to choose her favourite child? Well, of course, on paper, yes, she should be able to. However, the favourite child happens to be Prince Andrew, who last month had to, thanks to his mother, had to settle a $12 million, he paid $12 million to, to, um, against as an as a out-of-court settlement, against against these allegations of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse. And Prince William and Prince Charles have made it very clear that there is no longer a place for him in the public arena of the royal family. They must have been utterly aghast when he not only accompanied the Queen to the ceremony but also walked her down the side aisle and then sat in the front row. Now, the sitting in the front row, Caro, I think, really says it all about Andrew. He just doesn't get, as as we always say, Cara, optics are everything. What do you think?
1: Well, it became all about Prince Andrew going to the memorial rather than um, Prince, Ed, Prince Philip. So, and, and I, I know that um, the Queen, you know, she seemed very emotional during the service and there were, you know, there, there was stuff obviously about... What was said about Prince Philip, but it all became about Prince Andrew. So no, I thought it was the wrong decision. Um, a couple of missteps by the royals in recent weeks. I mean, um, William and Kate sort of th- those dreadful shots of them putting their hands through the wire fence that, that um, when they were in um, was it in Jamaica? It was somewhere in the West Indies anyway? Yeah, yeah, it was in Jamaica. And I mean, he made some wonderful speeches there. More apologies about you know Britain's shameful slave past. But um the shot of the little black children and the two elderly white the middle-aged white people's hands was just um yeah, it was pretty unfortunate. Not middle-aged, but and no, I don't I don't think it looked all that good. No, I I think you're right.
0: Um, Carol, what's the best storyline about Saturday's AFLW grand final? Cannot wait for this.
1: Oh well look, it's Melbourne in their first AFLW grand final, and they're a pioneer AFLW club. But the best store, and it's at the Adelaide Oval, so it'll get a massive crowd because they famously support their Adelaide Crows women's team. But it's Erin Phillips versus Daisy Pearce, the two biggest names in the game. And Daisy Pearce has been such a star, you know, a VFLW star. She's become sort of the face of AFLW and a award-winning v- AFL men's commentator. But this could be her last season. She, of course, gave birth to twins a few years ago, so... Both Erin Phillips and Daisy Piers and, mother, and mothers, and Daisy, I think is going to. I reckon she's going to lead Melbourne to their first premiership. And I just think that those two wonderful. those two wonderful ambassadors for women's footy, to see them both playing in the grand final. Melbourne v Adelaide, the beautiful interstate rivalry, the fact that both of them could be at other clubs next year, one as a star player for Port Adelaide in Erin and then coach, and Daisy, who we think is going to go into coaching, or Geelong are trying to convince her to go and be a development coach there for their men's team. I think it's a fabulous story, really looking forward to it. Corrie, what is your latest idea, your business idea, To save the economy. I'm looking forward to this one.
0: (laughs) Well, after yoga, after yoga the other morning, Caro, where we tend to gather and solve the problems of the world, the girls and I came up with this idea. We were talking about how locally uh, the local coffee shop had to has to now close one day a week because there's staff shortages. And we were talking about how this is a phenomenon, of course, across Australia. Post COVID, post lockdown. And indeed, the Australian Chamber of Commerce says Australian businesses of every size across every industry right around the country are facing tremendous pressures to fill open jobs. And we have a worker shortage. So the girls and I were talking about this and we came up with a scheme send me your nana. (laughs) Send me your nana, Caro, would be.
1: This is a business idea. This is a business idea.
0: (laughs) Send Me Your Nana is all of the women who are 55 plus, but it could be men as well, but we just thought Send Me Your Nana sounded really cute. All those women who would really still like to be considered in the workforce, they've done the child rearing, perhaps they've retired from really high-pressure jobs themselves, but they still want to be engaged a couple of days a week. Perhaps there are people who need a bit of income post-lockdown for whatever reason because the superannuation has just been, um, just been attacked. Send Me Your Nana could be an agency whereby companies, whether they are big or small, whether it's a shop or a local cafe or uh, some even the bureaucracy or an office job, they, they come to Send Me Your Nana with respect for older workers, which is what it's all about, turning around uh, conceive, preconceived ideas about people over 50 in the workforce and saying to the nanas, come and I'll give you a job. Carol, can you imagine if you were in this situation looking for some work, looking to connect, perhaps you're even a, a woman on your own. Maybe you're widowed or single or to to actually have the opportunity a couple of days a week to be back in the workforce, working within a team situation at the local cafe, you know, serving muffins at the local bakery. I don't know. Or it could be working in an office doing filing or temping or something. But there seems to be such a prejudice still about hiring older people.
1: It's difficult to get a job. I find it absolutely crazy. Surely that's just the sort of person you do want in your workplace because, A, they're experienced, B, they're more reliable, C, I, I think their work ethic is is just as reliable as anyone below the age of 30.
0: So, Carol, sort of how this conversation came about also was because, as you know, when I closed the bookshop, I wanted to and I needed to find a job. And as you know, I applied for a few And I was knocked back. Now, are you knocked back because you're overqualified? Well, I kind of doubt that. Are you knocked back because of your age? Yes, probably. But of course, employers can't say that because it's breaking the law. Under equal opportunity, they're not allowed to do that. But I think there needs to be a real rethink and the campaign needs to be called send me your nana or send me your grandpa or something which celebrates the talent and the wisdom and the experience of older Australians. So there you go. That's my soapbox. If anybody would like to comment on that, we'd love to hear your feedback next week. Um, Caro, (sighs) my next question to you is what was the highlight of your week?
1: Oh, an American in Paris. I went and saw it at the State Theatre the other night. It is such a wonderful show. I didn't read any of the re- reviews. I didn't go with great expectations. It was never, and I was probably influenced by my mother, Julia, here, but the Gene Kelly, Vincent Minnelli version was never one of her favourite Hollywood films. She much preferred Fred Astaire as a dancer. This is a fabulous show, Corrie. Um, it is um, the Tony Award-winning show. It's come to Melbourne. I've never, the sets are extraordinary. The singing's great. You know, songs like it's "Wonderful." Um there are um the Australian ballet stars, some Australian ballet stars, including Dimity Azuri, who took the Leslie Caron role in the night we went. It was absolutely wonderful. Um oh you just left. It was it was a real um as Anna from the Op Shop, my date for the night, said the business of show. It was big. It was spectacular. The music was great. The dancing was incredible. I absolutely loved it. So if you get a chance, it's still on at the State Theatre. Go and see An American in Paris. Corrie. And it's also, the story is obviously once over lightly, but a lot more in-depth than the movie version, a lot more about Paris post what happened with the Nazis, the German occupation, etc. Anyway, which April Netflix series are you excited to watch apart from the one we've just talked about, Capitani?
0: Anatomy of a Scandal, Caro. Anatomy of a Scandal is a book that I reviewed on the podcast in the early days, I think probably back in 2017 or 2018. Yes, remember. It's a terrific, it's a terrific Book and at the time, I remember saying this would make a great four-part BBC drama. Well, in fact, Netflix heard my call and <laughs> Net- Netflix have adapted it. Well, actually, um, HBO has adapted it for Netflix. It's the story of an up-and-coming British MP and his beautiful wife. They're two perfect children and their seemingly perfect life and. The partner, female colleague of a bit of touchy-feely inappropriate sexual misconduct in the office one night, and the, their world um, falls apart. And then um, there is a backstory relating to him as a young university student, the, the, the activities and drug use and so on that he and his friend, now the Prime Minister, got up to at the time. So this is the story of the legal case the fallout and Sienna Miller playing the in the role of the wife in Sarah Vaughan's book. I think she is a wonderful actor, Sienna Miller. She has real depth. She was almost born to play this role, I think, of James's wife and she's convinced her husband is innocent but of course as the court case goes on she realizes that perhaps all is not what it seems the cast also boasts Rupert Friend playing James the MP and Michelle Dockery she's one of the characters in it as well she plays the lawyer and do you remember Michelle Dockery played Mary Crawley in Downton Abbey, so yep. also a really fine actor herself. So look out for it, Anatomy of a Scandal. Its worldwide release on Netflix is, uh, I think it's the 15th of April, Cara. Really looking forward to that. And now finally, last question, what's your amazing fact for this week?
1: I'm channelling, you know, the, the story that captivated us last week and uh, most of the world, which was the the slap, the Oscar slap with Will Smith. And, you know, the inaction by the Academy, um, which was sort of a bit embarrassing. You know, there's an allegation they did ask him to leave. He's been expelled from the Academy. I mean, for heaven's sake, talk about, um, pardon the pun, a slap on the wrist. But just to remind you why Will Smith is highly unlikely to lose his Oscar, despite what he did. Harvey Weinstein, his company, I think, um, they won about 81 Oscars and he famously... um, won an Oscar for, um, as, as the producer for Shakespeare in Love. They didn't take away Harvey Weinstein's Oscars, even though he's in jail, and we know what Harvey Weinstein got up to. Roman Polanski, I mean, when you think back about the reporting of the Roman Polanski case compared to the way we are now, in 1977, he was 43. He was arrested and charged with six offences against Samantha Geimer, a 13-year-old. Unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy, lewd and la- lascivious acts upon a child. Six charges. Just think about that. She was 13 and he was 43, including rape by use of drugs. He um, And there was a plea bargain. It went down to one case, I think, which was um, unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor. He um, He did appear... He ended up leaving the country, fleeing the country because um, he knew he was going to go to jail. You know, years later, he won an Oscar as best director for *The Piano*. I mean, they're not going to take away Will Smith's Oscars if Roman Polanski can be given an Oscar, given everything that happened. If Harvey Weinstein,
0: not the piano, not the piano,
1: the pianist, the pianist. I'm sorry, Is it the p- yeah, the, the pianist. pianist. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, the piano was was of course the Jane Campion film. I mean, that is extraordinary when you think about And I remember the reporting of the time. It happened in the home that was owned by Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. You know, Jack you know, defended Roman Polanski. It's just extraordinary that this was not a scandal that ruined his career forever, but it didn't. And people talk about Woody Allen. Look at what Roman Polanski did. I still find that an amazing fact. Anyway, Corrie, that's the show. Thank you to our podcast supporters, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas. Don't forget to listen to our bonus episode, Dear Caro and Corrie. We want your emails. We want your dilemmas. Email feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. We've got a lovely little prize pack of books up for grabs for anyone who sends us a good question. Connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want our show notes... To get to your inbox each week, hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes, or send us an email, feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Don't forget our Mother's Day event, Thursday, May the 5th, $60 to come along and listen to Corrie and me and our guests who include Barry Cassidy and Heather Hewitt. And remember, that does include a donation to BCNA in that $60. Have a drink with us at Bill's Hotel, 5.30, as I said. At, um, on Thursday, May the 5th, a pre-Mother's Day event. Corey, what do we say?
0: Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world.